I heard many years ago a description of idolatry that I've tried to find out who said it, and I can't find it out for sure. It's been quoted as possibly Augustine. It sounds like him, so I'll tell you the same thing, possibly Augustine. But it's a description that strips everything down to its core in a helpful way. And this description goes like this. Idolatry is the use of that which should be worshipped and the worship of that which should be used. The use of that which should be worshipped and the worship of that which should be used. And I'd add in there, lawfully or rightfully used. And what it's trying to convey to us is that idolatry at its essence is using God to accomplish our own glory instead of worshiping God and using the gifts he gives as an item of worship rather than worshiping him. And I think if we think of it that way, we could give different definitions. If we think of it that way, we can understand where we edge into this idolatrous thinking. Now, when we think about idolatry from the Old Testament, we're, we're, we're easily dismissive of it, are we not? We don't carve idols and put them on our shelf and worship them or worship the God they represent. We don't go down to the the blacksmith or the carpenter and say, we want an idol of such and such a God and then bow down before that God. So we don't do that. If you do, you need to come and talk to me because we have problems I'm not aware of, okay? But because we don't idolatrize like the ancient Near Eastern cultures, that doesn't mean that we don't commit idolatry all the time, or come close to it. And you may say, but Pastor Rob, I'm a believer. I'm in Jesus. I have his righteousness. I stand before him justified, uh, before my God justified because of his life. And I say, absolutely. All the more reason we shouldn't turn things upside down and work for our own glory. And yet when we think about this definition, it's easy for us to realize that there are things that we place in the place of worship. And you say, well, how can I know that? Well, who is being glorified? And whatever act or thought that you're doing, who is being glorified and what's in your heart? You see, if we just think that way, there are a lot of things that become crystal clear to us. When I talk to young people about making decisions and older people who have not really thought through what the Bible says about making decisions, making biblical decisions, oftentimes it comes from how do I know whether I should take a job or how do I know whether I should marry this person? How do I know whether they're Mr. or Mrs. Right? How do I know these things? Well, they can't go to chapter and verse about some of these. We we can't go to Rob 4.23 and say Rob should take this job. But there are practical advice given, there's practical advice given to us in the scripture, and it hinges upon this idea, glorifying God instead of your desire. So just think of anything that you've had to make a rough, that's been a decision that's rough for you, and there's not a chapter and verse to, to go to the Bible in. And when you think about it, the way that we're making these decisions is we are, we are looking at our landscape of how our sovereign God has orchestrated it. Because everything we're walking through, God is sovereignly orchestrated, right? I mean, if we trust his sovereignty, it's one thing to say that he's sovereign, it's another thing to live as if he's sovereign. 
And if we're living as if he's sovereign, no matter what we're walking through, we know it's orchestrated by God for his glory and our good. So we look at the landscape and what our opportunities are. We take out all the opportunities that are sinful and we have all these other opportunities that are left. We seek wise counsel, a biblical concept. Now, we have to be the ones who make the determination on what is wise, but we're seeking people who we trust to give us biblical wisdom, and then we do what our heart's desire is. And if it's not what God wants us to do, that's okay, because our ultimate goal is to glorify him. And if we take a right turn and go down this road, and God reveals that's not the way we want to go, Excuse me, I am fighting this and I'm going to fix it so I don't have to adjust it for the next, well, you know how many minutes. (laughs) I made a biblical decision right there. Did you catch it? So our goal is always to glorify him. And if we're doing what we think is right and good and it's, it aligns with our desires because what we want our desires to be his desire, then if he reorchestrates things and says, no, this is really I want the way I want you to go, we're not upset by not pursuing that thing. We're only upset by not pursuing that thing if that is, the only way we're upset about that is if that thing has risen to an idolatrous status and now we want to pursue it anyway no matter what God's glory says. Well, that's what happens throughout every decision you make. With every good gift that God gives you, you're making that kind of a decision. Is this glorifying me or is it glorifying God? Am I doing this out of my strength or his strength? Am I using my wisdom or am I using his wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom he promises to give for all those who lack wisdom? And if the glory goes to God, then we can be sure of what we're involved in. But when we have that rubric, oftentimes we see, no, the glory's about me. Because if God wanted me to quit doing that, quit seeing this person, quit pursuing that house, quit doing this job, quit doing whatever or start doing whatever, if he really wanted me to do that, I would have a hard time with that. And we would get the God and the but God turned around again. Well, this is the concept that Isaiah is teaching in the, in the verses before us. He's teaching the concept that you should use God's gifts lawfully and in a wise way, but you should not worship God's gifts. That always you should be worshiping God. And it's full dripping of irony. It's dripping almost comically. I mean, this, this could be, we could take this and set it to a short film and it would win the satire division of the documentary could, um, competition. It's dripping with intentional satire because it's so foolish to divine ears. And we are tempted to go down these roads all the time. So Isaiah wants us to be able to make biblical decisions that do not lead us into idolatry where we're worshiping our own strength, our own stuff and things, our own wisdom, but we are constantly seeking the glory of God because he created us. Now you might say, well, you don't need to preach your sermon, Pastor Rob, because you just told us what it said. Well, I told you, and I'm gonna tell you what it says, and I'm gonna tell you what it said. I'm told that all the time. That's the way you're supposed to teach, right? So I did that today. This is where we're heading But your hearts need to be open to true idolatry because we can be idolaters. How do I know that? Because the Bible says if you covet, you're an idolater. Every one of us in here has coveted something at some time if we're not doing it right this minute. 
Because you know what covetousness at its very base? It's wanting something that God hasn't given us. And God's sovereign, and if he's chosen not to give give it to us, and we are coveting it, going after it, being jealous of other people, we are idolaters. So the New Testament takes this concept and parlays it into our righteous walk with Christ because of the work he's done. And that's our goal this morning, is how do we take these truths and fight against idolatry and glorify God in our life? Turn to Isaiah chapter 44. If you're not already there, which you probably are, we're going to look this morning at verses 9 through 23. So let's stand as I read these verses. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know in order that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God and casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them all stand forth. Let them be ter- they shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty or the glory of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over Over the other half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. 
Sing, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and he will be glorified in Israel. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in these verses, we are shown two components of idolatry and those who make idols. Two components of idolatry and those who make idols. The first component is found in verses 9 through 20. The reality of idolatry and idol makers is full of irony and folly. Full of irony and folly. Now, a couple of words as we start here. Notice, if you have the ESV and certain other translations, we move from the, a format of poetry to narrative, to prose. Most of Isaiah is given to us in poetry, but this is blocked off in prose. And I think there's a couple of um, versions who don't because there's, there are a lot of poetic components to this set of prose. But I think what Isaiah, what God is doing through Isaiah is drawing our attention that we have, we have just entered into a different reality. We are not using all of these wonderful pictures, whether it's God's justice and judgment or his righteousness and salvation, it's not being brought to us in these same flowery terms. It's being brought to us in a reality that is full of irony. And so in these verses, they're, they're set as a narrative and they read like a narrative. And you may be wondering, the second point here, why we read 21, 2, and 3 along with this block of narrative. And the reason, I wrestled with this whole section here for quite a while. And if you'll look at verse 21, or verse 24, I'm sorry, you see that phrase, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. That phrase will occur five times in the next several verses. So it's marking off a section of oracles that all start with thus say Yahweh. So we're going to take those sections. It's really one large section. We'll have one outline, but we'll cover it in two sermons over the next um, couple of weeks. So 21, 22, and 23 are clearly tied to this narrative because verse 21 says, remember these things. Now, the remember these things could be what follows, but it seems very clear it's what precedes. Remember how this idolatry has overtaken you, O Israel, but I have redeemed you out of that. So you need to remember what it used to be so that you were propelled forward in the righteousness in which I've called you. So this first reality, the first component of idolatry and those who make idols The reality of idolatry in idol makers is full of irony and folly. Idol makers delight in their work and expect profit, but they only gain open shame. We see that in verses 9 through 11. Now 9 through 11 start in a way that it actually ends in verse 19 and 20 as well. They kind of bookend this section giving us a summary. Look at the words that start out in verse 9. All. So we have an inclusive group here. If you are in this group, what's being said is being said about you. All who fashion idols, now I want you to mark that word. When we have seen this this constant um, reminder that God has formed Israel, remember we've seen that over and over, especially since we got into chapter 40. Israel has been formed by God. God has formed them individually and as a nation. This is the same word. 
So our mind is drawn automatically to comparisons that the the text doesn't make, but we should see because we've been going through Isaiah for many weeks in a row. There are comparisons between idols and idol makers and Yahweh. And there are many of them. There are 15 at least comparisons that we can draw from what we have already been told about Yahweh and what we know about idol makers that are being brought in these verses. So all, all, without exception, all who fashion idols, who who make, who form idols, are nothing. The same word in Genesis 1 that, that, is used, that we've seen in Isaiah quite a bit, that tohu, it means vapidness, emptiness, nothing. And I believe our eyes and our ears are supposed to be thinking about that word in creation because God creates out of nothing, but man creates nothing in the idol. And our, our mind should be seeing that. Our, biblically, our biblical theology should inform the way we read this. So all who fashion idols are nothing. They're emptiness. They're, they're vapid. That's the person, the person who fashions them. And the things they delight in do not profit. The things they adore, they're pleasurable ones. They're, they're, they're the ones that they've created and they have love for, they have affection for, they do not profit them at all. Now we're going to see why that's important, but why would you do anything that you shouldn't do Why would you do anything that you don't have to do, let alone something you shouldn't do, if there is no profit to you? So we start out right from the beginning, and we're thinking, why do we even need this? Who would do this? If the person who makes the idol is nothing, and the things that they delight in do not profit, why should we even listen? Look what it says in the second half of the verse. Their witnesses neither see nor know that, and I think that's a, in order that, that shows intent here, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. So remember what we've learned of witnesses, right? God has called several times the witnesses to bear witness to the idols. Can they tell the past and why it happened? Can they tell the future and what's going to happen? The witnesses of the idols are crickets. They can say nothing. But God's people are witnesses to his glory because they've seen him work. They've experienced that. So this idea of witnesses is now brought in. The witnesses to the idol makers and the idols, they neither see nor know. They're ignorant, Now, as this develops, we're going to see why they're ignorant, but remember what we have learned about idolatry in Isaiah. This is a topic that has come up several times for us, and we've covered different aspects of it, and it will come up yet again. But one of the things we learned earlier about idolatry is that those who are idol makers start turning into the idols, right? They turn into the emptiness. They turn into the senselessness. They, they start turning into that because they are pursuing after evil of their own accord. And so this is what's being brought before us. They can witness nothing because they don't see or they don't know. We know that idolatry is bad. We know that we should not create idols to worship. We know that we should not give the, use the gift of God and wor- the gifts of God and bow down to them in worship. But idol makers are searing their hearts. Those who are the idol makers are searing their hearts so that they don't even see or know that what they're doing is wrong. And that's going to be demonstrated throughout this text. This kind of gives us the overview of what we're getting ready to look for. They neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. There is a goal. The idol may not profit them, but there is a consequence to what they're doing. And they, the idol maker, will be put to shame. But it's even a broader net, as we'll learn in verse 11. But look at verse 10. There's this rhetorical question. 
Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Who would do that? Who in their right mind does this thing? Those with seared hearts. Those who pursue their own glory. Those who think their own wisdom and their own knowledge is greater than God's. And we'll see this contrast continue. So we already have the, it's almost like the peanut gallery up in the, up in the top, g- given all the choir parts up in the top, laughing and making uh, jokes about what's going on on the stage. Who would do that? Nudging each other. Who would do that? And then it slowly seeps in on them that anyone could do that. Verse 11. Behold, there's that word, tells us to look, gaze into, understand. All his companions shall be put to shame. So not only the idol maker, but everyone who comes to the idol maker, everyone who is associated with the idol maker, everyone who comes and says, if you will make the idol, I will buy it. All of them will be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Now there's a tip for what's coming. They're mere humans. Why would you go to a human limited by the human's knowledge, capacity, understanding, wisdom, talents, and say, make me something that I can worship? Just the idol itself is going to be limited by the limitations of a mere man, a mere mortal. Let them all assemble. Let them all stand forth. They shall be terrified, or maybe it should be, let them all stand terrified. They shall be put to shame together. You can bring you all of them. This is that same idea we've seen over and over in the court scenes, although I don't think this is a court scene. It's the same idea. Go ahead, bring them all. Line them up. Bring all the people who believe this and all the idols. Bring them all. Line them up, and all of you will be put to shame because your hearts and minds are turned away from the one true God. So this introduction tells us that idol makers delight in their work and expect profit but they only gain open shame. And we've learned that men form idols, but God forms the world and his people. We've learned that idols, in verse 9, idols do not help, they give no profit, but God is the one, Yahweh strengthens his people, and he helps them. The witnesses of the idols, they do not see, they do not know, but God's witnesses see and know what he has done. We also see in verse 11, idol makers tremble in fear, but God's people need not fear. How many times have we heard, fear not? We fear not because we worship the one true God. If we don't worship the one true God, then we should be trembling in fear. Idol makers will be ashamed, but God's people will not be ashamed. Well, look at this second aspect of the irony and folly of idolatry that's in verse 12 and 13. Idol makers require tools and their strong arm fails. Now this is a subset of the fact that they're only human. The ironsmith, verse 12, takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. Look at verse 13. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, the beauty or the glory of a man. 
So this is what the humans do to make idols. Now, your translations may have different words in here. The Hebrew is, is, there are a lot of Hebrew words in this section that occur only here. So there's not other attestations of those words to look at to see what they mean. So you may have a little bit different translation in your lab, but the point is clear, isn't it? The, the blacksmith, now some of your translations will, will make it look like the blacksmith is making an idol. The ESV says the blacksmith is making a tool that the carpenter will use as an idol. I think that's probably what the text is telling us, but the point is clear. They need tools. What does God need to create? Nothing. His word. He speaks things into existence. He creates from nothing. Ex nihilo. That's the way God creates. But man, mere man has to have a tool. And where do his tools come from? From God. The, the, the metal, the wood, the, everything that they use, the fire, everything, it comes from God. And so this, this irony is being set up to tell us. And the first thing that we see is that the idol makers that are human require tools. And God does not. God does not idol makers measure on wood and God measures out the heavens from the palm of his hand. Remember? That's how he measures. He measures everything we can see from, the, from just the span of his hand. What a comparison. Why on earth would you pursue the idol and the idol maker who comes to nothing and gives no profit when you have a God who created the universe out of nothing and measures the whole thing at the, by the span of his hand? But look what else it says in verse, in verse 12. The ironsmith works, works the tool over the fire with his strong arm. Now what have we learned all the way through Isaiah? I, I don't want to be pedantic here, but the language is chosen to make us chuckle. Who has the strong arm? Whose strong right hand upholds the nation, calls a nation to come and do God's bidding? It's God who has the strong right arm. It's always told to us that his right hand and his right arm are, this, are his strength, and it's always accomplishing things that humans can never do. But the blacksmith uses the strength of his right arm, and he's limited by that strength. He works it with his strong arm. It also says he becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he is faint. Are your Isaiah ears up? Is your antenna going? What are you thinking about when you're hearing weakness and faintness? We've already learned that if we wait on the Lord, he is the one, he never grows weary, right? He never grows faint. If we want to be the same way, then we are to trust and wait in him, on him. We are to wait. Anytime we, can I just remind you of something we've already learned? It's that time in Isaiah where we're being reminded almost every text of things we've already learned. So get used to it. I'm not just trying to be lazy here and say, I've already taught you this, but I need to teach it again. It's repetitive because we need it. Amen? It's repetitive because I need it. And I'm assuming you need it as well, that some things we can hear and forget by lunch. And Isaiah, speaking for Yahweh, does not want us to forget. So when we're living our life and we're running out of strength, we're not depending on him, we're not waiting on him. And I'm not saying there aren't seasons in our life where physically we get tired. There are those times. I was reminded in, in a tiny, 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 infinite amount with 10, four, and five-year-olds this morning in Sunday school, what moms go through every day, all day, every day. So we can get tired, right? 
But even in our tiredness, our strength is renewed as if we're being lifted up on eagle's wings when we wait on him because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. But the blacksmith, representative of human beings who are idol makers and those who worship the idols they make, they grow faint and they grow weary because they are not waiting on the Lord. They are saying, they are like Israel, make us the golden calf. We don't want to wait on them to come down from the mountain. Not waiting on the Lord. So the contrasts for us are stark. Look at verse 13. The carpenter stretches the line. He marks it out with a pencil. You might say, a, yours might say a stylus or a red pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man, the glory of a man, and its purpose is to dwell in a house. And I think that house is a temple, to dwell in a temple to be worshipped. Maybe to dwell in your own home, to put up on, on the mantle of your household gods and worship. But you notice that it is man creating an idol in whose image? His own image. And how does God create? He creates in his own image, but he's creating in his own image for his own glory. Man creates in his own image for his own glory. And what is the difference between a block of wood and human beings, men and women, that God creates? Men are limited by their own strength, power, wisdom, and knowledge. And they don't have anything to do but do it in their own glory. Now, even if they're making an idol that's in, it's supposed to represent the image and glory of God, they are limited by their own creative knowledge and process. And it's foolishness. It is, it is ridiculous for us to think that. Idols are images of humanity God made in his image. So idol makers require tools and their strong arm fails. I just went through the C, idol makers create in their own image. That's the primary thing that will set them apart. And I think what we need to see there is that they're creating, notice the phrase, with the beauty of man. That is quintessential for them. That is quintessential. And even that is looking at God's creation and trying to mimic it instead of trusting in the God who created the beauty of man. Idolmakers depend on trees created and sustained by God. Look at verse 14. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. So there's a man who, now this may seem a little backward. Shouldn't we have started with the trees to be cut down, to be made into the idols? It, it doesn't matter. It's telling us all of these different steps. And even the types of trees, you may have different translations in your Bible. But isn't it clear? It is God who gives the gift of creation. It is God who brings the rain to water the trees. Even when he takes a, a sapling and moves it over into a better place for it to grow and waits on it to grow so, the, so that the carpenter has the wood to bring down and make his idols, he's still depending on God to send the rain, God to give the increase, and all of it is because God created it in the first place. But he doesn't look to the heavens and thank the God who gave it to them so that he's got what we see he should be using it for. He plans it so he can make a living by making idols. So it's ironic that when the idol maker depends on trees, that those trees are created by God himself. 
Idol makers worship God's gifts rather than God himself. Idol makers worship God's gifts rather than God himself. Then, verse 15, it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a God and worships it. He uses it and he makes an idol and falls down before it. So there is the reality that these are good gifts from God to warm yourself, to cook meat over, we'll see in a moment, to bake bread over. These are good gifts. These are the right uses of the wood that God has blessed that man with. And I want you to notice the way it moves from verse 15 to verse 16. He's already told us that he uses half of this wood for good things, and then he builds an idol and bounds down to it. And it's almost as as if he wants to say, did you hear what I said? Did Did you hear how silly this is? Verse 16, I said, half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and said, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest... The rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. He he wants us to see that this is complete ludicrous activity in the face of the god who created them. And so he brings us a little bit more detail, but what he's bringing is a second recounting of the first in case we missed how stupid it is to do and the irony of using God's gifts to to use for what he intends, the usefulness that he gives, but then turning around and bowing down to it as if it would profit him anything. Why would this be done? David Wells once asked the question in one of his great books, this comes out of losing our virtue, why the church must recover its moral vision. What is worldliness? And he answers it this way. It is that system of values in any given age which has as its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteous. I'm sorry, I misread it. Which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. It's the upside down effect. That's what the world does to us. The world wants us to replace God as the one that we worship with the world because that puts them in good stead as well, those who are enemies of God because they're pursuing the humanness instead of the divine. And he's right that it begins to turn our world upside down. And that's what we're seeing here. Remember, Israel is guilty of being an idolater. Over and over and over and over in the scriptures, we are told that Israel bows the knee to the foreign gods in the lands that they are in. Sometimes they even pursue them. Sometimes they bring those gods into their own temple. This is something they've done over and over and over. So this is not something that he's telling the story. Oh, Jacob and Israel, don't be like those others. He's saying, Jacob and Israel, stop doing what you've always done. Stop letting the world overcome the truth that I've given you. 
And this is where we take it as well. We know that the word of God is true for us. And we know that it speaks to all these different areas in our life and tells us what to do with God's good gifts. That all good gifts come from him, from above, the father of lights. And we are expected to do, to use those gifts in a way that bring glory to him. And this goes back to that initial um, idea that we were talking about. How do we make sure we're not doing this? Well, when we receive a good gift from God, we are asking, how do we use it to glorify him? Because it's one thing to build the fire. It's one thing to praise God as you build the fire for the gifts that he gives. It's one thing to bake your bread, to eat your meal. It's another thing to give him thanks for all the provision that he's given and pray as the Bible says, Get, thank you for giving us what? our daily bread. It's one thing to take God's finances that he gives you to raise your family and pay your bills and turn that in to your primary vehicle of all your passions. You you can do that or you can thank him for the paychecks that come and the gifts and the skills that allow you to earn that paycheck and you're never thinking about your gifts and glory, you're thinking about his And when you live like this, then when the temptation comes to take something because you're fearing something, you're fearing men, you're fearing loss, you're fearing what would happen if you lost your job or you lost your family, you're fearing what would happen if you stood up for the gospel, when you start having those fears, you already have the self-talk to say, I don't need to fear all those. Why? Because the Bible says what? Fear not, because he is my God. He has redeemed me. And so when we push the fear away, we're not tempted to let fear be our, what we worship. This, listen, if we get a hold of this, most of our fight with sin becomes fighting with the temptation instead of the sin. Do you see this? This lets us, this lets us deal with the temptation, as James says, before it becomes sin, because we are, we are wrestling with every single temptation, not as whether I want it or not, not as whether I think it would be good for me, not as taking the, the voice of the Holy Spirit and squelching him and just going after our own glory. The first question is, how does this glorify God? It doesn't? Well, then I want no part of it. Because when we give in to that, every bit, listen, Every time you sin, you've committed idolatry. Do you know that? Every time. So this is why I'm trying to draw this beeline into our hearts. Every time that we sin, we are saying that whatever we're going after is more important than God, and we decide to worship that and give that our affections rather than God. And so this is one of the keys to living that Christian life that says we are constantly crucifying sin and pursuing Christ. Does it bring glory to me? Does it meet my satisfaction and my needs that are sinful to God, or does it bring glory to God? Well, when we take the wood in this picture, we, we all see it, don't we? You mean you're going to worship the same wood that God gave you to keep warm with and cook your food, up, food on? What an idiot. You've you got to be crazy. Why are you doing that? Can I fill in the blank in all your own sin and all my sin? Can you imagine if every time somebody tried to click on some button on the internet and look at something that they shouldn't look at, they said, does this glorify God or does this glorify me? Satisfy a good gift, take a good gift that God has given and let me express myself in a different way that is sinful. We turn away from that. We turn away from it completely. The next time we're tempted to be angry, or to take vengeance on someone, or to gossip about someone. 
The next time we're, we, we refuse to let the Bible overwhelm the sinful feelings that we have, whether it's anger, whether it's anxiety, whether it's, whether it's sinful thoughts and actions. When we give into that, we're saying God's wisdom, what he says in his word, doesn't matter. My wisdom is better. My wisdom is stronger. And that scripture, God doesn't know what I'm going through now. That scripture, he wouldn't even have written that scripture if he'd have known the anxiety, the anger, the fear that I feel. You see how close this is for us at every moment of every day. And so when we are looking here at Isaiah and we're seeing that glory needs to go to God and not to the human being, this is what keeps us from sin and in a more obedient relationship with our Lord. When we talk often in our church, and we do because it is key to the Christian life of what happens in Romans 6 and what we're shown, that in Romans 6 we are shown that we are freed from the power of sin and we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. You know that verse? Dead to sin, why? Because we are, and alive to Christ. Why? Because we are. We've been buried with him. We've been raised with him. And that is the key to fighting sin. When we have sin, temptation before us, we consider ourselves dead to that sin, but alive to Christ. And so Christ is saying, that doesn't glorify me. Why would you do that? That's not what I command for you. It's not good for you. It doesn't bring glory to me. It's an offense to me. It's an abomination that we'll find in a few minutes. But when we get that backward and we go, we picture, I've given you this picture of of Satan being bound in the dungeon of the new kingdom. Same castle, new ruler. Satan used to be the ruler of the castle, but now God is the ruler of that castle. And Christ is benevolent in his rule. He tells us what we should and shouldn't do, but he empowers us to do it and all brings glory to him because it flows from his character. Walks Satan down in the dungeon. But because we're still in this life, between the first and second coming of Christ, there are times that we, at night, we take the candle Maybe even blow it out when we go by everybody else's room and we venture back down to the dungeon, down those dark, dank steps, and we go back to Satan and we present our members to him for unrighteousness. That's the words that Paul uses in Romans 6. And believers can do that. Believers can get caught up in that trap. And as we do, it can overwhelm us where we don't see straight. We don't think straight. We think we can't control that anymore. We think we can't fight those things because we are deceiving ourselves. The most common lie ever told is to yourself. You know that, right? And so we continue to do that. Well, the Bible tells us not to do that. You've been freed. Consider yourselves dead to that. Now, let me tell you, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, Satan isn't just bound in the basement, is he? He's separated forever right? No more power to roam. But we have been freed. That's what's being dealt with here with the irony and fallacy and comedy of an idol worship. And we must hear it for all of its worth and apply it in our daily walk because daily we are tempted to idolatry, you and I. Well, notice what he says. Deliver me, for you are my God. In case there's any, in verse 17, in case there is any doubt of what's being told to us, the folly of dropping before wood and metal and saying, deliver me, for you are my God. (laughs) 
Well, the last picture of folly and irony for idols and idol makers is found in verses 18 through 20. Idol makers think they see and understand, but God has shut their hearts and eyes so that they have no wisdom. Look at verse 18. This is where the commentary starts about what has just been given to us. They know not, nor do they discern. So they don't have knowledge, and therefore they can't discern. Discerning would be what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what pleases God, what doesn't. They don't have knowledge. Why? Because their hearts are seared, is what we're going to find out. But they don't have this knowledge, so they can't discern. So they keep doing what is wrong. For... He, that is God, has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts he has shut so that they cannot understand. Now this is exactly what God gave in the commission. Turn back. We've looked at this in several passages. We're going to do it again. Keep your finger in chapter 44 and I want you to turn to chapter 6. We look at verse 9, and Yahweh tells Isaiah, after he's saying, send me, the Lord looks around, whom shall we send? He said, send me, here I am. And in verse 9, and Yahweh said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Now notice it's his ministry that will do that. Why? Because he's preaching truth to a people who don't want truth. He's preaching the character of God to the people who don't care about the character of God. He's preaching the commands of God to people who don't care about God. So you see the searing effect. It is your ministry, Isaiah, that will blind, and will, will blind their, their ears and, and make their hearts dull. What's the reason? The middle of verse 10. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God is doing this because they don't want him. It's the picture that we looked at in in chapter 6 and twice since then that in the same way that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and God hardens Pharaoh's heart, we have that right before us. If, we, if the men and women are going to look away from God and say, never will I turn to that, never will I believe in that, God will give them over to their own desires and say, do what you will. And when he gives them over, he's searing their hearts. And then Isaiah asks him in following how long, and he gives the, the reasons, but for our purposes here, we want to see the searing. They know not, back in Isaiah 44, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? There is no more discernment. This is why when we gather together as a church, we commit to biblical discipleship. This is why that's so. Because you and I can be so headlong into sin that we don't even realize that we are or that our hearts are being seared 
And the book of Hebrews tells us that if we continue on to the end, then we were never saved to begin with. And it's our own desires and our own um, hatred of God that leads us to that. But since we're confessing faith in the one true God and we are confessing obedience to Jesus Christ, we're meant to go after each other, amen? If you are going headlong into sin and you are blinding yourself and your heart's blind and you don't have any discernment because your knowledge is being clouded over, if you're doing that, do you want me to let you go? Or do you want me to come after you? I can tell you that if I'm doing that, you better come after me. You promised to do that. And we do that because God disciplines his children. And we can get caught up in that sin. We can be caught up with every night going back down to the dungeon and presenting our members to Satan for unrighteousness. And we should expect the church to be coming down with all the torches as fast as they can to grab us and bring us back upstairs and say, do you realize what you're doing? And give us the word of God so that the spirit of God inside of us grants to us that repentance and restores us to God because that's what God's do- God does with believers. So in this life, we can still pursue sin. But we don't have to be the person who has to just sit back and look at it and say, well, I can't believe that person did that. Because we have the gospel. And it's a powerful tool for God's people. It reminds us of what Christ has already accomplished and how we live according to that in his strength. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? So the observer sees what is happening but the idolater and the one who makes that does not see. And the final nail in the coffin, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Is everything I'm holding on to, this idol, the idol I make, the idol I bought, everything I'm holding on to, can I not see that it's a lie and I'm holding on to it? In the right hand where I should have strength, I'm holding on to a lie. And you notice the question, he cannot deliver himself. Well, that's true of all of us, isn't it? Every one of us here has to say, I can't deliver myself. If I'm saved, I could not deliver myself. And that's all of what Isaiah is pointing us toward. He is pointing us toward the fact that God is the deliverer and he has delivered, so you should act as if you are delivered ones and not ones who are beholden to idols. How do we know that? Because there are consequences. There's not only the reality of idolatry and idol makers, there are consequences of idolatry and idol makers because we are a people who have the propensity to go after things that are not good for us if we don't keep the truth of God and the word of God and leading by the spirit of God in our life. Our flesh will take over because we are still fighting with it and mastering that flesh. And so we, listen, this is the other side of this. The other side of church discipline, which starts with the one another's of scripture, right? When we say church discipline, it's not an ugly word. It's a beautiful word of God protecting his holiness in the church, But the whole practice of that is meant to bring people back away from Satan and put them back in the treasure trove of blessing. I've read before, and I read it again this week, of Paul David Tripp talking about taking his child to a museum in Washington, D.C., one of the art galleries there. And he was very excited about taking him because he wanted him to, he wasn't excited, the child wasn't, but Paul David Tripp was excited because he thought once he got him in there and he saw all these masterpieces and all these pieces of beautiful works, that when he got him in there that he would turn and be enthralled by them. And he took them in there and he wasn't turned and he wasn't enthralled by them. He was just as apathetic toward all the beauty that he saw. 
And he says that's a picture of what it's like for a lost person walking among the blessings of God. But for a saved person, we're grabbing all of each other and saying, come to the gallery. Come to the blessings. Remember what Christ has done on our behalf. Remember the blessings that God promises us to have in Christ. And those who are saved, the Holy Spirit of God resounds with that and they start seeing the beauty of the blessing gallery. That's why we do what we do in the church. Why? Because it brings glory to God because he is the redeemer. Look back at your text. Verse 21. The consequences of idolatry and idol makers must be remembered by God's people. For Yahweh says, first of all, you are my servant and I will not forget you. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. So we are given two commands in in verses 21 and 22. Remember and return. Those are the commands. Remember these things. Now, is these things what he's about to tell us? Or does the phrase these things refer to what he's just told us? And I think it refers to what he's just told us, but also leads us to what he's about to tell us. Remember what you just learned about idolatry, you who are prone to go toward it. Nation of Israel, church, remember that because of this. You are my servant. I formed you and you are my servant. Man forms idols and men bow down before them, but I have formed you, so bow down before me. Why would you do the other? I am the one who created you. You are my servant. Remember, servant in most of these um, places in Isaiah talk about Israel themselves as a nation. I formed you. You are my servant. Oh, Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? It's not, I won't forget you or you remember me. It's remember that you will not be forgotten by me. You are my people. I called you by name. I formed you. I've known you since your mother's womb. So I am not going to forget you. So remember these things. Remember who you are in me. Remember what you're not supposed to do and the, the folly that it leads toward. And then the summary of who they are and the power by which they can not be those things. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. I'm not sure why the ESV says mist. It's really another word for cloud. It's basically saying the same thing. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a thick cloud. That's what I think it's meaning. So it's remember that I have done these things. Now, if God has blotted out their sins, why would they go sin as an idolater? We're still in the irony, but we're being reminded from the positive side of who we are. And we remind ourselves of that in Christ, right? When we are pursuing sin and other people come and remind us of who we are in Christ, we say, God has forgiven you all your sins, but he's also freed you from their power. So consider yourself dead to the sin that you were, that you were going after. And if you continue to go after, when we get the whole church going after you, then you're giving evidence that you are an idolater at heart and never been redeemed. This is why we remind each other who we are in Christ. And that's what God is doing through Isaiah. And so, what does he say? Return to me. The only people that can repent, this is that idea of repentance, right? That's what repentance means, is to turn away from the sin and turn toward God. And the only people who can do that are the ones who God has set his affections on. I mean, you can turn away from consequences of sin, but you don't turn away from sin thinking that offends a holy God. That is an abomination, what I'm about to do. 
That's not why people turn away from him if they're not in Christ. They don't care what God thinks. They turn away from it because there are too many consequences of it. But we, we are the people that when we go after each other and say, repent of this, we know that if they're in Christ, what do they can do and what will they do? They will repent because that's what believers do. And it spares us from the consequences of even more sin. So you are my servant and I will not forget you. I have blotted out your sins and you must repent if you commit idolatry. And finally in verse 23, even creation sings. And this should say, because my glory is displayed in my salvation. Look at verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and will glorify and will be glorified in Israel. Now, the irony kind of continues here, doesn't it? The same tree that man wants to cut down to worship, God calls to worship him. Now, if you're a tree, wouldn't you rather worship God than be cut down and worshiped? Of course you would. That's what Romans 8 tells us, right? All creation longs for the redemption of the sons of men. This is Romans 8 in Old Testament form. All the creation should sing because I'm about to redeem my people and I have redeemed my people. This is what God is about and it should bring joy to us. It should bring songs of praise to us. We gather to sing because we have a God to sing about, not because we like to sing. We like to sing because we've got an object to our singing. We like to gather for worship because it's how we're created, because we have a God who is worthy of worship. No tree is worthy of that. No rock, no sun, no star, no no sin that we could pursue will give us that benefit. There is no profit in idolatry. So we pursue the one true living God. And when we aren't pursuing, we are hoping and participating in a church that drags us back into the presence of God to receive that forgiveness that Christ has already given us if we are a believer. Because when we are blinded, we're, we're like the people who sit in a hoarder's house and everybody else walks in and they see the clutter and that they can't move and it's dirty and, and all that, but the hoarder doesn't see anything. All they see is their desires, what they want. And so the people who love the hoarder try to take them out of the house and clean it up and put them back because they can't see the truth. Well, believers can see the truth and we need to be drugged back into the place of blessing. Otherwise, we'll create our own world, get caught up in that complete delusion that the world gives. So no one can deliver himself. That's the job of Christ. And Yahweh is the deliverer who sends his son Jesus. So all all of the things that we've said today, all these comparisons are what help us build up our knowledge of a God that is big. Because when we sin, our God is small. Now he doesn't change, but our view of God is that he's inconsequential, he is small. But when we fight that sin through the power of the gospel, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and that we glorify God with our lives and we return to his blessings, all that brings glory to God. And our God is bigger because even the world sees, as we started in 1 Thessalonians, the fruit of them receiving the gospel was that the people saw they turned from idolatry to, to the one true living God and to wait on the return of his son. And that's exactly what we do. David Foster Wallace was a lost man, but an acclaimed novelist. Ended up committing suicide in 2008, but just before he died, 
He gave a very famous commencement address, and it's amazing how much a lost man summarizes the picture of the world pursuing their own desires. He said this in this, in this graduation speech. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Now that's a lost man describing the way lost men think. We are people that realize all of those are gifts from God. We use them lawfully for his glory. When we begin to get the tables turned around and start worshiping them, we've entered into idolatry. We take the good gifts of God, use them lawfully, and worship the one true God. Now, Isaiah's day, they're fighting against handmade idols. Our day, we're fighting with the idols that we make when we pursue sin. But we are the ones who are redeemed. We are the ones who have the power. We are the ones who have been called to righteousness and equipped to live in that way. So Isaiah's message to us is, glorify God in everything, and you will always forsake the idols. Let's pray. Father, we need strength in this for every day in our life. We are constantly being challenged to do things and to follow things that are the wisdom of the world, using the strength of the world, constantly pulling us away from everything that you've told us to do. But we have gathered here, Lord, as a church who loves your word, drawn together by your Son, and you've given us commands of how not to live in this way, but you've also given us the truths of who we are in Christ. And so we pray, Father, that our daily journey, every day that we live, is spent to glorify you. Every decision that we make, we ask ourselves, does this glorify Christ? Or is this about me? Is this, is this to satisfy some need in me? Is this to satisfy some fear? Is this to allay some command that you would have me uh, implement and activities you would have me change in my life? Father, give us strength every day, not only for ourselves, but also that we might be a people who undergirds other believers walking this walk. For the enemy is strong, but you are stronger. The enemy, Father, tries to allure us into the world, but you have already allured us. You have already brought us into the kingdom. You have given us your son, Jesus, and all of his beauty and grandeur and power, and he is never going to leave us. And he has empowered us to take the gospel to the world, and he's empowered us to live according to your commands. So we pray, Father, that our our view of you and your Son and your Spirit grows minute by minute, day by day, as we immerse ourselves in the truths that you have placed before us. So help us to do this for your glory and your glory alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.